Steve Krakow is our speaker tonight. Um, Steve came to Princeton, New Jersey in 1979 to begin a doctorate in ethics with Paul Ramsey at Princeton University. I arrived a year later to begin a PhD here at the seminary. Um, we went to the same church, got to know each other. Uh, we're in and out of trouble. Um, <laughs> He has, he has been a dear friend for so many years and um, a covenant brother, which means something special to him and Daryl and me. Uh, I won't try to explain that, but I think you have a general idea. Um, it's all about prayer and fellowship. So that's been going on for like 25 years now. So uh, he went to uh, Elmhurst initially to teach ethics and then moved to Pittsburgh Seminary and somewhere along the line uh, took on responsibilities as their librarian. And I think you, you did an MLS in the meantime. Moved from there to Princeton to become the Lennox librarian here. And he's now at Yale Divinity School serving in the same capacity as their head librarian. Uh, Steve is a dear friend to the seminary and to the BART Center as he will now explain. <laughs> This is, thank you so much for, Kate and Bruce, for inviting me to share this talk to you, with you tonight. Um, it's called Marcus Bart and the Path to the Center for Bart Studies at Princeton Seminary. And I will just, my purpose is to draw clear and direct lines between Marcus Bart and his vision for the Bart, Karl Bart Archive and Foundation in North America in the early 1970s to what happened, what happened in the quarter century after that. And, um, this is a, is a story about Marcus Bart and what brings us together this weekend, not just to consider his legacy, which is, as we've seen, remarkable, but the point is that we're considering his legacy here in this library building, which houses the Center for Bart Studies. It's not a, this is not a talk about theology and scholarship, uh, at least directly. It's a talk about relationships and personal connections. Uh, the takeaway from this talk is that relationships make great things happen in this world. And particularly, um, I think it's particularly evident in um, what took place here in the late 1990s between Princeton Seminary, the Karl Barth Archive in Basel, and then the Marcus and Hans Jakob Barth families. I'm delighted that Shabnam and Anna could be here. I, I wish Peter was here, and I, and Rosemary and Europe, would be, she should be here. I mean, Rosemary is the uh, historian in the family, and uh, she quite correct everything I had to say. Um, <laughs> but the story does start a little bit earlier than uh, what's here at Princeton Seminary, and I want to start with a, just a very simple question. You know, why was Marcus Bart interested in starting a or an archive in North America devoted to the legacy of his father. Uh, intellectual debt, no doubt. A strong sense of filial piety, perhaps. I don't know enough, and I'm not really interested in getting into a, understanding the dynamic between the two, a very complicated uh, uh, question. And those are complex matters, even for after dinner conversations that have been fueled by wine uh, with people who admire you know, both men. I've often thought that of all the Karl Barth children, Hans Jakob, uh, Jakob had the 
took the only reasonable course in life and became something completely different than his father, and that was to become a landscape architect. Um, that's what I would have done, I think. <laughs> but clearly, Marcus was not interested in running from his father's influence or making a name for, him, for himself at his father's expense. From what I can tell, it was just the opposite. Uh, my forays in the Marcus Bart papers, talking with people who knew him, suggests to me that one of the reasons he left Switzerland in the first place was to try out his father's ideas in, in a different cultural setting, uh, a place where different social issues were in play. So in, in Pittsburgh, for example, you know, he, was deeply in, he lived in a Jewish neighborhood, primarily a Jewish neighborhood. He attended a biracial church in, in, not far from the main um, housing projects in Pittsburgh. So I think he was very keenly aware of social issues. And uh, my, my hunch is that he was interested to see how his father's theology would play out in these kinds of settings. And so you know, when it came time to look for a job after being a, a pastor, uh, the United States seemed like a good option. He had several options, if I recall. And he went to uh, Dubuque, Iowa for a couple of years in 1953, and then University of Chicago, and finally at Pittsburgh Seminary, where he stayed until he returned to Basel. His father died when he was on the faculty at Pittsburgh Seminary, and in the months that followed, uh, there was considerable activity, led, I think, led by Marcus Bart to set up organizations devoted to his father's legacy in Switzerland and in North America. Uh, to me, that says he was secure enough in his sense of himself that he could recognize the a work that needed to be done on behalf of another. Uh, now, as you probably all know, Karl Barth's will left clear instructions for all the unpublished materials in, in the archive. And there's massive numbers of unpublished materials. It led to a, a formula, the formulation of a Nachlass Commission, a legacy commission, it consisted of Karl Barth's living children and his son-in-law, uh, Max Hellweger, it, it had, which had responsibility for Barth's literary remains. A stiftung or foundation was also formed in July 1971 to make the works of Bart known, to encourage the study of his thought, to collect writings of Karl Bart, to publish an edition of his works, to promote and support biblical and ecumenical study research, conferences, publications. And it would be happy to solicit and collect funds from anybody who wanted to donate to the publication of his, of his works. The idea of a Karl Barth Center in North America was not far behind the one in Switzerland. It was, they were thought of almost simultaneously. You know, why North America? I mean, all you have to do is think of the steady stream of people who went to Basel to do doctoral work with Karl Barth. Uh, John Howard Yoder and James Smart and Sandy McElway and Brevard Childs, for example. And I think there was also a belief, whether it was justified or not, that there was money in the United States that might be useful to help publish this great uh, literary output. So in 1971, Marcus Bart prepared a proposal to establish a Karl Barth Society, a Karl Barth Archive, and an ecumenical center at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. As he envisioned it, this North American Bart activity would be closely related to the, to the activity in Switzerland. It would be housed in the library at Pittsburgh Seminary, be the property of the school. It would be owned by P 
Pittsburgh Seminary, but it'd be open to scholars uh, anywhere. It would contain all the published works by Karl Barth, including the posthumous works, microfilm collection of at least some of the unpublished works, a complete collection of secondary literature, a collection of related background materials, such as on the church struggle. And then finally, a collection of sound recordings and photographs and memorabilia. Marcus Bart expected Pittsburgh Seminary to contribute more than space. He thought they should contribute money for a budget, perhaps a director. Uh, and it would, again, like, like I said a minute ago, it helped, hopefully helped to raise money to support the publication of the Gesamtausgabe. I mean, it's not difficult to imagine that Karl Bart, uh, sorry, the Marcus Bart saw this as a great plum for a seminary like Pittsburgh. In the, in the 60s, when he was there, Pittsburgh Seminary had great aspirations to be something of a theological university. It had interesting ties with the University of Pittsburgh to share a doctoral program, to share uh, something in public health, and perhaps something in education. I'm not quite sure about that. At that time, the University of Pittsburgh was a private university. In the mid-60s, it became state-related, which raised all sorts of questions, not just about bureaucracy, but about how do you incorporate this theology thing. So that, that sort of died. One of the early snags that Marcus Bart ran into was how do you collect money in the United States to send to Switzerland? And it wasn't as easy as it might be today. He wanted to do it legally, and he needed to create trust agreements that would, uh, and bylaws that would be acceptable in both countries. Uh, how could a, a Swiss foundation have an arm in North America? And again, it wasn't an easy question. Uh, he wrote to a, a, an attorney in Pittsburgh to say, help me with this, and the attorney wrote back. He said, I, he said, I think the idea is workable, but quote, many more hours, many more hours of planning are necessary. Uh, thinking and research than perhaps you imagined. <laughs> uh, so you can see where that went. That went nowhere. <laughs> the, the, the form this fundraising group took was to be something like a, a friends group, and that was acceptable. Um, the purpose of the foundation was to provide the necessary funds for the conservation and the addition of the literary legacy to stimulate research. The same things in Switzerland. Um, and the different parts of this and how they were to relate was ne were never really completely worked out. Uh, this did not. This whole episode is a, takes place in a very short time, a year maybe, in, in Marcus Bart's life. Uh, when Marcus Bart pitched the idea of a Karl Bart Center in at Pittsburgh Seminary, uh, the fortunes of many theological schools like Pittsburgh were on the downturn. Uh, ambitious periods before gave way to periods of poverty. And, um, and Pittsburgh was really in bad shape financially uh, in, in that time. It stayed that way for quite a while. And, and, and in the 70, 80s, President Callion raised enormous amounts of money and invested it wisely. And now the school's in great shape. As I, as I read this, this correspondence, it was almost as though the Pittsburgh Seminary is like, well, what can we get out of this? All right, you want to start this center here. You know, how can we get our hands on something? What, can, what will this do for us? And 
So, that was, that was what was going on there. And, um, you know, Marcus later tries to, uh, to do this at the University of Toronto. He's good friends with David Dempson, and uh, after Pittsburgh fails, he contacts, he's in touch with David Dempson, and I don't know who suggested what, but uh, uh, clearly there was little money in ra little interest in raising money for the Xamdal Scholar. That was just never anybody's idea. I couldn't, I couldn't get anybody enthusiastic about that. An idea of an ecumenical theological center had appeal, but not tied too closely to Karl Barth because there were a lot of interesting things happening in American theology at the time. Um, a few library shelves with duplicate Barth materials, yeah, that's doable. Uh, but ongoing budgets for the library and for a director, those were all secretarial support. Those were all much more complicated. Conferences, um, again, they were popular. That worked. And then there were a number of scholars at Pittsburgh and then Toronto, uh, who were interested in a duplicate library of Karl Barth's papers. But that's what they wanted. They didn't want the things to support that. So negotiations with Pittsburgh Seminary did not go well, to the point that uh, he, Marcus Barth was looking for a new position uh, by the end of 1971, not just for this archive, but for himself. He was not happy there. and. There were conversations uh, with Toronto about the center going there, and then Marcus Bart taking a, p a position at the University of Toronto. I don't know how far the the, um, uh, the negotiations went, but Dempson and Bart talked about it quite a bit. And it's funny in these conver in these letters, uh, Dempson's letters to Marcus Bart, after they go through some business, Dempson is always writing a theological question at the end. Oh, by the way, what is your view on this or that? And, and Marcus would write back these nice long letters to him answering his questions. Um, there's a, uh, I can show this to you. I have this, um, this is a Marcus Bart type, it's a typescript, and his, it's just his tiny handwriting on it. But he has this establishment of a North American Karl Bart Foundation, the Bart Archive, an ecumenical center. And, and somewhere, in one of these copies, it's, it's got Pittsburgh Seminary crossed out and Toronto written in. You know, that's, that's the level of this. This was all happening rather quickly. And um, um, so, but nothing really came in the Toronto efforts either. When Marcus Bart was negotiating with Douglas Jay of the Toronto School of Theology, Dempson urged him to establish the center in a way that it could run its own, own show. Otherwise, it would be lost to bureaucracy. So that was a problem that Dempson feared. I've often wondered, what if, what if Marcus Bart had thought to come to knock on James McCord's door here back in 1970, 71? Things, history might have changed drastically. One of those big questions that uh, I would ponder. Well, an, off, an offer to Marcus from the University of Basel turned up, and he returned to Switzerland in May 1972. He was not only returning to a teaching position, but he was returning to do battle with Friedrich Wilhelm Marquardt over his interpretation of Karl Barth's socialism. He left with little settled about a North American Barth Center. It just, he threw himself into it for a short time. Pittsburgh Seminary, Toronto, 
and then he went back, and there's not really, and the correspondence seems to drop off after that. Um, the, there was a, uh, the Karl Barth Society was in good place, good things came of it. Uh, there was a, the conferences, a newsletter, the Karl Barth Society North America chapter fell short of Marcus's vision for a full program. There was a major colloquium on the theology of Karl Barth in Toronto in October 1972. Marcus returned to that. Were you at that conference? Yeah. Okay. Um, was, yeah, okay. I, I thought I saw your name there. But like I said, um, the Marcus Barth files I've seen, and there could be more, they seem to drop off after that. By way of, of background to the next chapter of this little paper, I never met Marcus Bart. I, I grew up in Pittsburgh, and while I was playing touch football, going fishing, and smoking cigarettes behind my parents' garage so they couldn't see me, uh, eight miles away, Marcus Bart was doing serious theological work. Uh, and he, that's when you know, I was just too young to, to be there. The year I graduated from high school, he was having these conversations with the University of Toronto about creating an archive there. And then he'd be on his way to Basel. I was a student, and I mentioned this for one silly, silly reason, because my, one of my sons was very talented in the old days with Photoshop. And this picture gets around, but this is a picture that he photoshopped of me. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, um, unfortunately, I, I missed Marcus Bart at Pittsburgh Seminary. Um, I came a couple years later, and the, the atmosphere in my students' days was that a feeling of greatness had departed. Um, we didn't know Marcus Bart, we didn't know Dietrich Ritchell or Arthur Cochran, but we knew of them and their work and their theology, and felt like we got miss something. Now, they were still, still an exciting place. But in, in those days, after Marcus Bart, Pittsburgh Seminary came to be dominated by Reinhold Niebuhr and Paul Tillich and liberation theology, the early liberation theology. And there wasn't much interest in Karl Bart at all. Ford Battles anchored the, the history faculty and taught courses in patristics and Calvin. And the only thing that Pittsburgh Seminary students had to boast about was that he got to translate um, the Calvin's Institutes and not Ed Dowie, which was, I know was always a sore spot in Ed's life, but, but um, that's the only thing Pittsburgh Seminary students could boast about. The only, honestly, the only sign I remember of Karl Barth or hearing much about Karl Barth as a seminary student was his desk, which was in the lobby of the library that Marcus had arranged to give to uh, Pittsburgh. In return, Pittsburgh Seminary gave Karl Barth an elegant modern desk. And it's a lovely desk. It's, is it still in, in Dieter's home? I think so. It's a beautiful desk. Um, to this day, Karl Barth's desk, which first belonged to his father and where he wrote the Church Dogmatics, is in the, in the Pittsburgh Library, although it's not in the prominent place it was when I was a student or when I was a librarian especially. But it's still there, and it still draws a crowd. I don't believe I seriously encountered Karl Barth until my senior year in seminary when I took a course on the authority of scripture. 
and read um, large sections of two, one, two. The course was taught by George Kem, a Harvard-trained systematic theologian who was very interested in Karl Barth early in his career, but like many in the 60s, lost interest. And he got interested in hermeneutics and Pannenberg and other, other such things. There were those at Pittsburgh Seminary who said that Karl Barth's influence in North America was dead, it was done, it had run its course. There were others, like one of my Old Testament professors, Eberhard von Waldo, who said that this is, this is nonsense. Karl Barth's influence has not yet begun to be felt in North America. I tucked that away. Um, one of Marcus Barth's closest friends on the faculty was Dikron Hadidian. A, uh, he was the librarian there, and he, he edited a feshrif for Marcus Barth at some point along the way. He was also a New Testament scholar and influenced me greatly uh, along two paths. First, his interest in biblical theology, and then his career as a theological librarian. After starting doctoral work here, as Bruce mentioned, I became a convert to Karl Barth, and uh, Bruce and I got to be great friends. And then if you finish my degree, a few years later, I joined the faculty at Elmhurst College, and there was a guy there named Ron, Ronald Getz. I don't know if anybody knows there's Ron Getz. Ron was an avid reader of Karl Barth. He published almost everything he wrote in the Christian century. And he was the host to the regular meetings of a thriving Karl Barth Society, uh, North America Midwest chapter. And they had great meetings there regularly. Uh, I, I attended those meetings with people like Donald Blesch and Donald Dayton and David Dempson and Walt Lowe and James Nelson and Russ Palmer. George Hunzinger came to a meeting, uh, talked to, did you ever go to those meetings? They were terrific meetings. Um, and I, I do remember just a very few conversations with Ron Getz, whether we should try to move the small library that Dempson had collected together at Toronto and move that to Elmhurst and set up something there. It was while I was working in the archives doing research at Elmhurst that I, my love of libraries began to grow. I, was, uh, I discovered these, this stash of papers that belonged to Reinhold Niebuhr and H. Richard Niebuhr and Paul Lehman, who were all students there, and, and H. Richard Niebuhr was president. This was like this great cache of stuff, and it was fascinating. Got interested in libraries and uh, started thinking, what's it like to build a research collection? And I thought about doing that for H. Richard Niebuhr. Um, well, in 1987, I, re I ended up diving in and became a librarian and actually went back to Pittsburgh Seminary on the condition I go get to library school, which is what I did. That's when Hadidian took me aside and told me all about Marcus Bart and his efforts to start a center for Bart studies at Pittsburgh. Um, Hadidian was still bitter that Pittsburgh Seminary had rebuffed his efforts. Um, and he admitted, you know, the opportunity at Toronto died quickly too. And with Marcus back in Switzerland, the idea itself seems to have went, at least went dormant. Um, As Hadidian's successor at Pittsburgh, the presence of Karl Barth's desk in the main lobby, as well as some, I called them the Bartifacts, I found in the archives. Just like stuff out here, pipe, you know, pens, eyeglasses, you know, it's cool stuff. Um, I began to, uh, you know, think about, you know, what does this mean to start a research collection? Then Thomas Torrance came to Pittsburgh to give lectures, and one day I found him sitting on the floor right next to the Barth desk with his hand on top of the church dogmatics. 
And he just always said to me was, he said, what a remarkable achievement. And that was it. And, what? The dogmatics. Yeah, the dogmatics. What a remarkable achievement. And that started to put this idea in my head. All right, Pittsburgh Seminary is not a good place for a center for, for Bard studies. There's no one there was interested in Karl Bard, really. Andrew Purvis was. But none of the, none of the theologians were interested. So, and if you know the, you know the story here, I, I just forgive repetition, but I got myself appointed to the executive committee of the Karl Barth Society with the idea of let, let's put out a request for proposal to schools in North America to see who would like to become uh, home to a center for Barth studies. And I, Kate dug up the, uh, it's great having Kate, the Karl Barth Society newsletter, fall 1995, Center for Bard Studies, question mark, the all-important question mark here, because that was the question that they raised. Is there interest in a Center for Bard Studies? So um, two schools showed considerable interest, Yale Divinity School and Princeton Seminary. Uh, this was 1995, well, maybe 96, 97, that we went this, through this process. By that time, I was being recruited to come here, um, which was really nice. But Princeton's offer included space in its brand new library, which is not this one, which is the one behind that looks old and shabby now, but that was new uh, not that long ago. It included a small budget and included money for a staff person, which is spectacular. Uh, Yale could only promise some space once the Divinity Quadrangle was renovated, and that would be a few years from so on June 26, the Carl um, Barth Society Executive Committee voted to locate the center, at least let Princeton Seminary have the, the, their blessing. Bruce, you, know, you greased my tracks here to come here as librarian with, with Tom Gillespie. Uh, don't repeat that. Tom Gillespie was you know, the president, and he was, he was my hero. And uh, he was a great man for a lot of reasons. but. In this particular case, he was especially great because he knew, he didn't really know a lot about Karl Barth, but he knew Barth was important, not just for theology, but for the church. And that was what really drove Tom's passion. And in my experience with presidents, this was un really unusual. He didn't want a center for Barth studies for what Princeton could get from it. He wanted to know how Princeton could make it better, how what Princeton could, could, could give it to the world. Uh, of course, not everybody was happy with the idea of a center of Bard studies here. Um, there was some flack. I got some flack um, from some faculty members because there was this question of what right did I have to set up a, a research center in the library? That's sort of the privilege of faculty members. And, well, we dealt with that, but I understand that. I, I do. Um, but I, I was, this was way too important to... to you know, put up to a faculty vote, you know. <laughs> so um, you got that. It's really true. Um, and in the meanwhile, George Hunzinger was available, and so I was able to hire him as the first director. And to have an, an internationally known scholar like George added immediate, you know, weight to the place. It was really tremendous. As I got settled here, Bruce filled me in on, on the Karl Barth world in Switzerland. And I was, you know, I was, he was my teacher on, in these matters. 
And he was always a strong voice reminding us not to forget funds for the exempt Ausgabe. You were that, it was like your drum you, you beat. And um, So we had this, RS, this, this RFP, this list of criteria, things we wanted to do, and we just went to Switzerland and said, what are, George and I went, what are we going to do? How do we do this? What are we, there's no blueprint for us to do this. So we move forward. Um, before we went to Switzerland, we said I started collecting materials for the library. That was easy. And George started reading groups, which was tremendous, and had conferences. Those, those were terrific. Um, and the question, it, it, it only became clear to me later, you know, would Princeton Seminary try to reestablish formal connections with Basel at the outset? Or should we just try to go, a, go it alone at first and then see what developed? Um, and that's, again, the way we, we took because I, I think we needed to earn the right to be heard. We needed to prove that we were serious about doing something. And I think that was a better course to take than, than to um, try to get something set up and then have expectations be um, dashed. Uh, once again, Bruce was the ideal teacher here. Uh, he had known, of course, known Marcus Bart, spoke German, was also familiar with the Basel archive, and he had known and thought highly of the recently retired and now recently deceased archivist, Heinrich Stuvesan. That was the upside. That was great connections. The downside, I probably never even told you this, Bruce, especially for someone like me who was not a Bart scholar, um, did not speak German, but your, your portrayal of the world of Swiss Bart scholarship is formal and unapproachable, high and mighty, and just terrifying, absolutely terrifying. <laughs> um, so off we went, and our agenda was simple. I mean, I did have Princeton Seminary behind me, and that was great, and George. Uh, our agenda was simple to announce that we were we were in business. We wanted just we wanted to be help helpful. We had a, a lot of ideas, a little bit of money, and um, we just like I said, we had to earn the right to be heard, and I think we did. One of the first things we did was to meet Hans Anton Dravis, the director of the Bar Archive. Well, any nervousness I might have ever felt about meeting a high-powered German theologian was completely vanished in about five seconds. I, I don't think I've ever experienced such warmth from, uh, and goodwill from a stranger. Um, not even my mother. No, no I was just kidding. Um, he, he was incredible. You know, he was incredible. And he, in addition to being genuinely interested in what we were doing, he took time away from his impossible workload to introduce us to anybody who we thought would be helpful. We didn't really know what we were looking for, but Bruce's guidance on the one hand, Anton's on the other, it was a perfect combination, and um, we really were able to do great things. Not only was, did he open his life to Princeton's work, and he really did, but he was also a model to me as a, as a librarian, because he was one who devoted his considerable theological abilities, and they were considerable, to the work of supporting another, um, who he knew was far more important than he was. 
Hans Anton Dravis was a, is a, is an unbelievable theologian and historian, and but he devoted his life to this work, and it's it's so impressive. It was great fun to meet uh, Nicholas Pater, Nick, Nicky Pater, who was working for TVZ um, as the director. Then he had a, your friend had a degree from uh, the seminary. Met his wife Rainey, who was the daughter of Hans Jakob and Renata Bart. Um, we went to TVZ to talk to these editors about what we could do, and I had the feeling, I think George did too, that they looked at us sort of amused, like, what are we doing here? <laughs> and um, they were very nice. They were very nice. We'd come back to them, and they'd be more interested. Um, after, actually, after we raised the million dollars from the Lilly Endowment, we, they, they were suddenly interested. And <laughs> um, but they, they were, it was a wonderful relationship. We had a great time with them. Uh, and it seems that whenever we met Nick, Nicky, he was always taking us to an Italian restaurant and, and selecting the wine. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> um, I recall that Bruce was you know, surprised that Anton and I became so familiar so soon. Yeah, we did. We ran together. I mean, we just really hit it off. The Rhine, and then up on that, like a farm area up. Mm -hmm. I mean, after my first couple of visits, I stayed in, in his house with him in the third floor guest room, and you know what a you know, that was so cool. Um, but and then at night we'd sit around that little bar study, and he had this big cabinet full of all the bottles of things that people sent to him in appreciation for his his research. You know, he is he is a he is a great friend. He's one of the, my favorite people, and if you know him, I take great pride and pleasure in the fact that he considers me responsible for his marriage to his wonderful wife, Miriam. Uh, what? It's true. <laughs> well, yeah, this, he's a confirmed bachelor. And Miriam, if you know Miriam, she's just energy and delightful and loving and sweet and fun. And it's also considerably younger than he is. And he, he, I remember talking to him, going for a walk one day, and he said, what am I to do? You know, I'm too old to get married. What? Yeah, what will people, I know. What will people say? That was his big thing. Yeah, what did say? What I said to him was, oh, we have a word in English that describes men like you when there's, there are young, attractive women interested in them. He said, what's that? And I said, lucky. You know? <laughs> so it, 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 it's great. They, they give me great joy whenever I get a chance to see them. Um, one of the things that, that he did was to introduce me to, to you and to uh, your family. And it was just, it's just a real joy to, to get to, to know you. And um, you were also interested in our work. And, um, but it was, it, was on a, it was a very, um, this kind of stuff is ambiguous as a librarian. I, I, sometimes I'm like an ambulance chaser, you know, following you know what that word that, that, that means in German, ambulance chaser, someone who chases after dead people's widows. <laughs> you know, because I, I, librarians like me, we get collections of things from people who are deceased. Um, and I got, I got to see your house, you know, and, and, and well, your parents' house in Rien. Peter lived there, I believe. And you know, Marcus's study was filled with books and papers and uh, and your mother had a study there too, if I recall. And 
there, and it was shown to me as a point of pride. This is where my mother did her work, and uh, well, and and you know, the, the, it was just a great experience. To make a long story short, in a few months, a huge number of boxes arrived at Princeton Seminary, uh, just, and so did the standing desk, which is now upstairs. And the, it was full of all sorts of the paper this morning. The the, the correspondence was so rich. That was a perfect example of the kind of riches that are in that collection. And um, the Marcus Bart family, they're the ones who really pushed us on the question of, well, you have a center for Bart studies. Well, there's a lot of Barts. Who, you know, who else is included here? And that's, that's exactly the right question. So uh, I think we've been open, open to that. It's been a, it was a really helpful remark. But, and, and as great as the materials were, it was the relationships that really made this all possible. There's no doubt. And uh, I could just go on and on and on, really. I just, it's one of the joys of my life. This led to the Princeton-Basel agreement in 2001. A delegation from Princeton went to Basel, formalized the agreement. It was it's a high point of my life. <laughs> it was. It was really spectacular. Well, it, it was a, a great occasion in the city hall, town hall. You know, this sumptuous meal, this gorgeous building, overlooking the Rhine. It was, it was fun. Um, it was good work. I felt really proud of that work that we did, that Princeton did. Um, when I it wasn't until I, I looked on those papers, I found this paper trail of this Marcus's plan to start a, a Karl Barth Center in North America. Um, and when I saw the list of things that he envisioned, I was really gratified because we had thought of all those things and more. Um, I don't think there was anything that he had envisioned except raising money that we couldn't really do. Um, but we managed to, to um, pick up on the things he envisioned. But here's the point I want to make. Apart from all these great materials, without the help and support of people, Support that only grows in relationships and breaking bread together. That's where all this happened. It was human relationships and trust that develops and um, the freedom that comes to ask questions from people you know. Uh, like Bruce said, we did raise over a million dollars. We digitized the church dogmatics. And one of the things I was so happy about was to di digitize and microfilm all the manuscripts in that archive, and if you've been there, it's, it's his last house. It's a nice house. It's got some fire suppression stuff. But Anton, whenever he would go away for the weekend, he'd worry if he left the gas on. You know, it, it's, it, was, it was awful to have that be the house where all these treasures were located, thousands of photographs and other things. So we could we digitize that. Now there's a copy here, the copy there, and a copy in, under some mountain in Switzerland somewhere. Um, started an online uh, bibliography, conferences, we've interviewed people who knew Bart. Um, and 
The goal was that Princeton would become the one place in the world where anybody doing research on BART could go knowing that they would almost certainly find what they needed. And that was what motivated this. There were a few missteps along the way, and Kate and I talk about them. Um, we had, we've had a hard time dealing with, with TNT Clark and uh, on this whole issue of copyright of the church dogmatics, but that's another matter. Uh, there's so many people, and people in this room, Bruce and Daryl and George and Kate and others, Ken, Ken Henke from Special Collections that kept, that kept the good things happening. And, and uh, if this was a book, I'd be thanking Cliff Anderson as much as anybody. He was an absolutely remarkable contribution to, to all this. Um, as I thought about this conference, one of my regrets was that I couldn't invite everybody down the street to my old house, which is what, what we would have done I said I still lived here, because that's, that's, that's the fellowship that, this, that these relationships have, have led to. A year after going to Yale, I ran into Serene Jones. She's the president of Union Theological Seminary and was on the Yale faculty at the time when this proposal went out. And after we caught up, she said, hmm, I bet you wish you had selected Yale instead of Princeton. And, <laughs> and there was some, some truth to that. I was a little, but, <laughs> but after being at Yale for three years, there is no way that I could have, or anybody could have started a BART center there, even though the, the, the Yale wanted to, the faculty did. There, there's way too much attention paid to long-range planning and fundraising and endowments. And, and because the library there does not report to the Divinity School, it reports to the university library system. There's a bureaucracy just that's almost impossible. And I, that makes a point that, you know, I think while Princeton Seminary would share many of Yale's concerns about long-term financial viability, because we are in an age of much greater accountability, Princeton still has an amazing amount of flexibility that should not be taken for granted. Uh, this is a unique place. It really is truly, and I, I've been away now for three, four years or more than that, and I, I can just see how unique it is. I'm going to conclude now, but I just want to um, urge all of you, if you feel interested, called to it, to refresh and renew our relationships and to create new ones in the hopes of fulfilling, surpassing not only Marcus Bart's vision, but the vision that got this started. Bruce, you know, Bruce and I and others, you know, our, our generation, Daryl, our generation is starting to turn, and there's going to be uh, a need for a, a younger generation to come along to pick up this uh, mantle and carry this forward. Uh, there's still, from my vantage point at Yale, there's still a lot of things for to, to be done here, and in my rem in my remaining years, anything I can do to help is uh, be a joy. Thank you very much.